Thank you, Misty. Good morning. It's really wonderful to be with you this morning. I think that um, maybe we worshipped so hard that we actually broke Ben's guitar today, which um, I'm going to chalk that up as a success for this morning's worship session. And um, I'm really excited to be launching into our our topic for the day. And we're about to um, start a brand new series as a church, a five-part series looking at the topic of amazing grace. And um, there's this incredible story uh, about C.S. Lewis, the great sort of Northern Irish um, literary giant. I always like to remind people of his Northern Irishness because we're quite proud of him and uh, proud that he's one of ours. And um, the story goes that C.S. Lewis was, um, was at a, a conference on comparative religions, world religions, and there were all these experts there, and they were doing all kinds of debates and theologizing, and, and they began to discuss what is Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. If anything, what is it that's unique about Christianity? And, and all the experts began debating, and they started to look at resurrection. But we've got forms of that elsewhere, and could it be incarnation, but you see that in other places too. And, and the debate kind of goes on and on. And eventually C.S. Lewis kind of ambles into the room with his cup of tea and asks, what's all this fuss about? What are we debating? And they said, well, we're just discussing and trying to figure out what is Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. And C.S. Lewis responded by simply saying, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And when his colleagues... Um, they discussed this because, of course, they like to discuss things, theologians. They, they kind of discussed this answer and eventually came to the conclusion, he's right. It's grace. This notion of God's love coming to us completely free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every kind of instinct of humanity. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. And so today we're really excited to be launching this series on grace because it is one of the most profound, important and unique truths in the Christian faith. And we're also launching this series here at Emmaus because grace is fundamental to our values, to who we are as a church. We want to be a graceful church. We want people to encounter grace every time they encounter one of us. We want to make people welcome. We want to be a people of forgiveness, acceptance, love of the stranger, of normal, messy people. We want to be a church who engages with the poor, the lost, the unreligious, the immoral, who shows love and welcome to all these people because of the extravagant love and welcome that we have received from Christ. Grace is fundamental to who we are at Emmaus. And we're basing this series on this incredible book, which is called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Has anyone read this book? Yes. It's, it's a, an amazing book, isn't it? It's an incredible kind of story of grace. And it is 
I would say it's one of the most influential books of our time because it, it, it kind of brings to the surface the, the importance of this radical doctrine of grace. And it will make you weep in parts, it'll make you angry in parts, and it will just bless the socks off you and bring you closer to God and make you fall in love with him all over again. So if you haven't read this book, I would encourage you to get your hands on a copy of it. We're going to be spending five weeks on it. If you don't have a copy... Someone can borrow mine. I said this already this morning and someone's already claimed it, but you can get it off Joe Nichols once she's finished it. But there's loads of copies out there on Amazon.com and elsewhere. Um, so make sure you do get a copy and, um, and that's what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks. Um, today we're going to begin by looking at Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Will you pray with me for a moment? Jesus, I thank you that if it was not for grace, not one of us could be here today. I thank you that you've welcomed us. And I thank you that by your grace, we come into your presence. And so by your grace now, Lord, would you open each one of our hearts? Would you open our minds to the truth of this incredible doctrine? Would you come face to face with us this morning and teach us Teach us what grace really means. Amen. So I want to ask you this morning, what comes to your mind when I say the word grace? What does it make you think of? What does that concept mean for you? And I want us to read some stories from the Bible of what Jesus has to say about grace, and then we'll kind of arrive at, at some sort of definition so if you do have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, if you want to grab that out. And, um, and as we read these stories together, which you may have heard loads of times before, um, I want you to just, as you read these, to think about your view of God. What is he like? What does he feel about you? How does he feel about the person sitting next to you? How do you feel about being in his presence today? Does he look a little bit stern in your mind? Do you picture him maybe thinking about all the ways that you might have slipped up this week? What expression do you see on his face? Growing up, um, we had a pastor in our church when I was a child and when he was preaching, he used to sweat a lot. And he used to um, preach and sweat. And as he would talk and as he would go on, his voice would get louder and his voice would get louder until the point where he was shouting at us. And when he would shout, he would spit. And so Rose kind of wander four. This was the splash zone where nobody wanted to sit because of the sweat and the spit. And if you were late to church, this is where you'd end up. Nobody wanted to be late for church. And I wonder whether maybe this was his genius ploy of punctuality and whether we should start using a little less deodorant in a mess. Perhaps that might encourage us all to be a bit more punctual. But he would be there and he would be sweating and he would be spitting and he would be shouting and sometimes I'd be just so distracted by the whole process of, of, of the sweat. But, but sometimes I would actually begin to, to try and think about what, what was he saying? 
And I'd begin to think about what was this God like that he was talking about. And, you know, not once did he ever paint a picture of God with a smile on his face. Or maybe you could kind of stretch your imagination to there might be a smile on his face, but it would be one of those sort of benevolent, sort of saintly smiles, like a royal family smile, where it's not actually a smile, it's, it's a look, right? It's not an expression of any kind of emotion. It just might be a, a look. See, when we read the Bible, certain images come to our mind, and sometimes we begin to read ourselves into the story. Or other times we might miss certain expressions because we've grown accustomed to not seeing them there. I think oftentimes we carry the baggage of hearing the tone and the temperament of the first person who read us these stories. Or perhaps the loudest, sweatiest, and spittingest person who read us these stories. But I want to ask you today, have you ever pictured God smiling? Not a royal family smile, but a proper smile. Have you ever pictured Jesus like laughing with his friends or maybe even throwing someone a cheeky wink? I remember hearing a preacher say once that, you know, Jesus is often going around and saying, your faith has made you well and healing people. And, um, and the story that Sammy read this morning, what do you want me to do for you? Your faith has made you well. And And this preacher said, think about it, it's almost impossible to say those things with a scowl on your face. It's actually almost impossible to say those things without a smile. You can picture it, that blind man getting his sight, and the Bible said he began to rejoice and praise God. What does that look like? He's jumping around, he's grabbing onto people, he's like, I can see. And somehow, in the midst of it all, we picture Jesus... right? Benevolent. Maybe the royal family smile, nothing else. It's impossible that he didn't jump with him, right? Get excited, rejoice. And so when we come to the Gospels and we open the Bible and we look at the person of Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus comes to reveal what the Father looks like. And so I'm here picturing someone quite somber, someone quite stern, someone who definitely doesn't feel or express any emotions. And Jesus comes into this picture and and he says, this is what God's like. And so let's read together from Luke 15. And there's three stories. In the first, God is portrayed as a shepherd. In the second, he's a woman who loses something of value. In the third, he's portrayed as a father. And we're going to read these together. And as we do, I want you to think about that question. In each one of these stories, what does God look like? What expression is on his face? If you want to just close your eyes and we'll read them out, then you can do that or you can follow along with us in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. 
Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him a thing. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There is no solemn lecture from the shepherd or the father, no beating the sheep for running away or making the son squirm for a while before he's forgiven. This, Jesus says, is grace according to the kingdom of God. Philip Yancey in this book talks about having heard these stories so many times, and yet still, he says, each time I confront their astonishing message, I realize how thickly the veil of ungrace obscures my view of God. A housewife jumping up and down in glee is not naturally what comes to mind when I think of God. Yet, that is the image Jesus insisted upon. So how can we define grace according to the Bible? 
Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of prayer and worship and fasting and campaigning for justice, theological training, nothing. And grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of sin, no pride or pornography or anger or jealousy or even murder, nothing. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love, completely, unconditionally. But make no mistake, this grace was the costliest thing in the world. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. But to us, it is free. All we must do is receive it as a gift. One commentator said that it's easier to understand mercy than grace, right? So mercy can kind of be defined as you didn't get what you deserve. And grace can be defined as you got what you didn't deserve. So if I'm heading off from church today and I'm really keen to get home in time for my Sunday lunch and so I maybe speed a little bit on my drive back to Godalming and, and so the police pulls me over. Mercy is he forgives the speeding and lets me off without a fine. Grace is he hands me a thousand pound check instead of a fine. And if that sounds extravagant to us, our reality is eternal paradise in the presence of God instead of our sin. We speak about grace a lot in the church, don't we? We, we talk about it, but sometimes I wonder, do we really live in the truth of it? I saw a girl yesterday, I was in Costa waiting for my drink, and she had two tattoos just above her two feet. And it was two four-letter words. One of them said, no. And the other one said, live. And it struck me that I think sometimes in the church we spend so much time on that, that one foot, the no foot. We know about grace. We know about God's love. We know that we're saved by grace. We, we know the doctrine, but we don't really know how to live in the truth that we're unconditionally loved, that we're unconditionally free, that nothing we can do will make God love us more or less. We don't know how to step into it, and so we kind of go through walking with a bit of a limp. Our lives will only be truly rooted in grace when we have both feet on the ground, when we know we're forgiven and we learn to really live in the joy and freedom that that brings. And I think we find it so difficult to, to understand and live in grace because it's too good to be true, right? It's too extravagant, too ludicrously good to be true. Could it really be that God loves me exactly the way that I am? No, just give me another couple of days. I'll, I'll pray a bit more and, and, and I'll, I'll learn a little bit more about him. Give me a couple of days. But God says exactly the way you are in this moment. He loves you as much as he will love you for all of time. We struggle with it because it seems too good to be true. And I think we also struggle 
with this idea of grace because we live in a world that is a, an ungracious world. We live in a world of cause and effect. We learn pretty much from the day we're born that when we, when we do things, when we do things wrong, there are consequences, that the things we do have an effect, either positive or negative. And so we perform. We go into work and we work and we work furiously to meet our targets. And if we meet our targets, then we succeed. And if we don't meet our targets, then we fail. We get asked to leave. And so we go and we work as hard as we can. And when we're rewarded, we feel satisfied. And when we're not, we feel guilty. And, and we work and we work and we work. And is it any wonder that we come into church on a Sunday morning? And before we worship, we begin to think through the checklist of our week. Have I done well this week? Have I done my quiet times? Have I, have I pleased God this week? Am I worthy to be here? Am I worthy of this encounter with God this morning? Or did I mess up big time this week? Did something I, I did or said or thought this week, do we feel disqualified from worship this morning? And, and we'll, we'll try harder next week. Next week, we're going to be on point. So by next Sunday, we'll be ready and we'll be worthy and ready to worship. And our faith kind of goes on this emotional roller coaster, this, this knife edge. We're forgetting that none of us has ever, ever, ever done anything that qualifies us to be here in his presence. And that none of us will ever do anything that will disqualify us from being here in his presence. We live in an atmosphere, Yancey says, choked with the fumes of ungrace. Grace comes from outside as a gift and not an achievement. How easily it vanishes from our dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, look out for number one world. Grace shines out like this sweet melody, but I think sometimes we don't realize how much we're affected by the mathematics of the world around us and not the crazy economy of love that the Bible talks about. It's like traveling somewhere like Beijing, for example, if you've been there where the air is just so polluted. And I went there a couple of years ago and you step off the plane and you minute the step, the minute that you step off the plane, it's, you're so aware of this pollution and the fact that you're breathing it in. And I step off the plane, but then I go into the airport and meet my friend who's lived there for two years, and he's oblivious. And by the end of two weeks' visit there, I'm oblivious to what it is that I'm breathing in. And kind of like city dwellers who no longer notice the polluted air, we kind of breathe in this atmosphere of ungrace, unawares. And so I think what happens is that this air of ungrace comes in and it affects our worldview and it makes the grace of God feel too good to be true. And so sometimes what happens is we begin to put boundaries around God's grace. We maybe find this idea of like a God who looks at us like a boss looks at his employees. We find that maybe easier to understand. And so we put these boundaries around grace for ourselves or for other people, for who is or isn't able to be here, for who should or shouldn't feel good about themselves being in church. And we put these boundaries around grace. And what we end up is, we end up with a diluted gospel, a grace that's so different to what the message of Jesus was. It's kind of like, if I am on the hunt for the world's best wine 
the perfect wine, the wine that beats all other wines. And so Adam and I decided we're going to find the world's best wine and we're going to share it with you at Emmaus Road Church. And, um, and so we take all of our savings from the bank and we go to buy the world's best wine, but we realized that maybe we could just buy Sainsbury's best wine <laughs> with all of our savings. But we carry on on this search until eventually somebody comes to me and they say, Hannah, I have found it. Here it is. I give it to you as a gift, the world's best wine. You will never taste wine like this. It is perfect. It is without flaw. It is the most delicious wine on the planet. You want to take a sip of it, don't you? It's a little early, but it's still, we could do that. The world's finest wine. But then it's like I say to myself, but I don't know if I'm really good enough for this wine. Like, this is the best wine in the world, and and, and I don't really even know that much about wine, and I haven't, haven't really worked hard for this. Someone just gave this to me. I don't really deserve it. And to be honest, I don't think you guys deserve it. I saw, I've seen people from this church do all kinds of things that are not okay. They don't deserve this wine. I've seen the way that guy talks to his kid. I've seen the way that that person uses their money. It's, they, these guys don't deserve this wine either. And so I think, well... What I'll do is I'll just, I'll just do this. We can have this wine. This will actually, this will go a longer way. This wine is okay for us to have. We deserve this wine. But what, what I've done is I've turned it into something that it's not. This is no longer even really wine. This just looks disgusting. Does anyone want to try my wine now? It's totally disgusting. It's unpalatable. It's not what it was in the first place. But do you know what? When we don't accept God's grace over our lives, when we don't accept that we are good enough for this free gift that we've been handed, when we don't accept that the people around us are good enough for this free gift that we've been handed, we take the grace of God and we turn it into something that it's not. We dilute it down so much that it becomes unpalatable and it doesn't have the power to really do anything. No one wants to be a part of it. In this book, Philip Yancey says that if you ask most people in the street today what they must do to get to heaven, most people will reply, be good. And yet Jesus' stories totally contradict that answer. Constantly, Jesus told tales of prodigal, undeserving sons being saved and brought home. Lazy, end-of-the-day workers who show up and they get given a full day's wages. Corrupt tax collectors who stand and mutter an inarticulate apology and they get direct connection with heaven. Wandering sheep who get the undivided attention of the shepherd. And Jesus did this not just with his stories, but with his whole life. Jesus was surrounded by vagabonds and rascals and tax collectors and outsiders and people of ill repute. And his message to them time and again is one of grace, of welcome. So often we take that precious thing and we make it something that it's not. 
In his very last moments before death, Jesus does this thing which frustrates and, and subverts for all time every notion that salvation has got something to do with us and our righteousness and our, our ability to do well. And he turns to the thief dying on the cross next to him. And this guy is, he's, he's converting. And Jesus knows full well that he's converting out of fear, out of the fact that he's about to die. And he knows he's lived a horribly sinful life. And by the skin of his teeth, in the final seconds before death, and Jesus turns and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The grace of Jesus' teaching his friendships and his life is so scandalous and so shocking and so hard to comprehend that even centuries later, some people still feel they must make themselves worthy of God in order to get to heaven. What we so often fail to grasp is this wild truth of the kingdom. That on the cross, God treated Jesus like me so that he could treat me like Jesus. The wine is here for you in all of its fullness. Don't settle for that watery stuff. The feast has been prepared and it's laid for you. Eat, drink, and be merry, the Father says. Enjoy the feast. There's a party because of you, because you're here. And at the center of it all, we have a dad who runs who doesn't even let us finish our apology speeches because he's so busy kissing us, wrapping us in the cloak of sonship. This is my son. This is my daughter. And I'm so proud of her. There's a simple cure, Philip Yancey says, for people who doubt God's grace for their own lives and their own sin. To turn to the Bible and take a look at the people God loves. Doubters, adulterers, thieves, prostitutes, murderers. The Bible has seen them all. And it's not just that God loves them, it's that he chooses them and uses them and they get to play a part in his great plan. One of the things I love is that on page one of the New Testament, we get the genealogy of Jesus. This is his family tree. It's where it's recorded who sits in his family line. And if we need a cure for doubting grace, all we need to do is look at the people who make that list. Outsiders, Gentile women, Tamar, who's involved in incest, Rahab, who was a prostitute, King David, who committed adultery and murder. This is a genealogy like no other. Because these were the things that people used to commend themselves to the world, to tell the world how great they were. King Herod the Great is famous for purging about half of his family tree out of his genealogy because he didn't want to be associated with them. And Jesus comes and totally turns that on his head. Jesus is owning them. He's bringing them in. And what that means is that no one, not one of us, is excluded. And a prostitute and the greatest king of the Old Testament sit down together as equals at the table of Jesus. And what that means for us is that he is not ashamed of us. He will not scratch us off the list. We will sit down with kings, no matter what we've done. Hebrews 2, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers 
sisters. If you're struggling with doubt over whether God has grace for you, look at the Apostle Paul. Paul tortured and killed Christians. He was brutal and unforgiving and ruthless in tormenting and persecuting them until he, Jesus comes along. Paul meets him face to face, gets knocked flat off his horse. And you know, Paul, he gets, he gets knocked flat by grace and he never really gets back up. It becomes his defining message. Do you know that not one of Paul's letters, sorry, in every one of Paul's letters, the word grace appears no later than the second line. He says, look at me. I am the picture of God's grace transforming someone's life. Yancey says this, I cannot moderate my definition of grace because the Bible forces me to make it as sweeping as possible. God is the God of all Grace. And grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I, who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. So what does grace mean for Guildford? How does it make a difference to the people of this city that, that we at Emmaus are filled with grace, that we at Emmaus know that we are saved by grace. It matters because we get to go out and play the song of grace in an ungracious world, a world of cause and effect, a world where there's hurting and pain and bitterness and unforgiveness. We all know the sounds of ungrace, don't we? Of disgrace. Even last week we had to turn our music up in the house because the neighbours through the wall next to us were having such a loud screaming match and we could hear every word of their argument. We know the sounds of ungrace. What does grace sound like in our city? What melody does it play over the people that we meet, our co-workers that we spend our days with, our families that we raise? What does grace mean for our city? We are the greatest advert for who our Heavenly Father really is and whether he smiles or not. When our life becomes accented with grace, the world sits up and pays attention. Gordon MacDonald says, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You do not need to be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry or care for the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. And so Emmaus Road's single most important contribution to Guildford is grace. We go into all the world and sing the sweet song of grace that Jesus came to set us free and call us his beloved brothers and sisters. I want to close with these words from Brennan Manning, who some of you will know lived a life of ups and downs and grace and ungrace. And Brennan Manning struggled with alcoholism and all kinds of other things. But in the midst of all his struggling, he encountered the God of grace. And he had the most beautiful, profound revelation of this. And I want to read this to you. My message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be it is the message 
of grace, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 to 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs and no buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Why don't we close our eyes for a moment and, and look at Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you are grace, that, that you are the very definition of grace and that by your grace we come today and by your grace we tell you we love you and by your grace we have heard your voice this morning. And I wonder for some of us here this morning we're really conscious of that checklist thing, that roller coaster, that um, that living on a knife edge where sometimes we feel like we're doing really well and sometimes we feel like we're doing really badly and God just wanna, wants to come and show you his smile today. That he is proud of you. That he loves you. That he has said you're worthy not because of anything you've done but because of everything that he has done. I think there might be others of us here this morning who feel like we've done something that has disqualified us, something that's disqualified us from God's favor, something that we feel means that we no longer can play a part in his kingdom. We no longer can do those things that we once dreamt of doing. And this morning, Jesus wants to say, it is I who qualifies you. I choose you and I will use you. It is by my grace that you are qualified and it is time to dream again. Those dreams of the kingdom, playing a part in what I'm doing in Guildford, it's time to dream again. And if that's you, we're gonna come in a moment and we're gonna receive communion together. But if you do want prayer for either of those things, then grab someone who's next to you or grab one of us at the front. And the final thing that I feel like God might be saying to us this morning, Adam had this sense during worship when we began that there's someone here who is just terrified of public speaking, hates it more than anything in the world. It's your worst nightmare. But yet you've you feel like maybe that's something that you're gonna do. Maybe you've got a presentation coming up where you need to do it, or maybe you feel God's just calling you into something where, you, where you're gonna need to do it. And, and God wants to say to you this morning, it is I who qualifies you. It is by my grace that you do all that you do. And if that's you, we'd love to pray for you at the front. So God, we come to you. Jesus, we come to you, we ask that you would reveal your grace to each one of us in our hearts now. 
We love you, Jesus. Amen.